Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Bill Morrison, who's the Managing Director of Corporate Sales for Sander Training in EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Bill, welcome. Morning. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. Bill, could we have a couple of minutes on who you are and how a Scot has ended up in Switzerland running sales, corporate sales for an American company? Well, that's quite a big question. Let's just take it one bit at a time. Let's do the why I'm doing this, I suppose. I've been a Sandler guy for about 11 years. I lived in America, and I decided the longer I lived in America, the more European I became, strangely. So uh, I had a good look at an atlas, and I decided that Switzerland made sense for me. Having been, as you can probably tell from my charming accent, I am Scottish, but uh, I had done Scotland. I checked every box in that sheet. I'd been rained on long enough. And we decided to come to Switzerland. So we came across here just over 10 years ago, my, myself, my wife, and my dog. We knew nobody at all. We had no contacts. There was no Sandler thing. And we cold called the business into existence. So I've been 10 years over here, and it's been a tremendous change. I've loved living here. And now David Madsen and myself, the owner of Sandler Training, I've been talking for many years about a sense of frustration that we both had, that Sandler wasn't always getting the coverage it deserved in terms of major corporate accounts. And we thought, okay, it's time to make some changes. So he and I decided at the end of last year, 2018, to put some plans together and to launch Sandler Training, Corporate Training and Development for EMEA. So there we go. That's your summary. Excellent. Tell me something. Many organizations have already got very established sales processes and they've fallen in love with the Hyman's, the Spin, Challenger Sale. Why on earth would anybody consider the upheaval of changing from something that they're already familiar with to move over to Sandler? They shouldn't change anything at all. They should absolutely stay with what they've got. First things first, all sales training is of some value. I've done so many training courses in my life, and I'm sure you have too, and many of your listeners, they all bring some value, but you shouldn't choose to work with us unless you think you can get more from your current resources, unless you think your people can do a little bit better, unless you think you're missing too many sales. And unless you think your people spend far too much time talking about themselves and not enough time discovering the pains of their customers, if you think there's potential for your company to grow, then talk to us. But if you're perfect, why would you need us? (laughs) A very classic Sandler response. (laughs) Thank you. So tell me this then. When you're asked the question, what makes you guys different? How do you respond? It's the ultimate question, actually, because from the outside, Training and development companies kind of look similar. They all make promises and they all have the 19 P's of selling or the blah, blah. They all have various imagery and we all look a little bit similar. Here's here's what it is that I get to. Here's a few different things. Number one, in Sandler, there are no trainers. We don't employ trainers in our organization. We are sales guys. Every single person in the organization you talk to that carries a Sandler badge, we've all done it. And in fact, we all do it. We're a relatively tough organization. We eat what we kill. So when you're talking to a Sandler guy, you're talking to a guy who's sold his way in. Second thing in here is, we all learned the hard way. We all learned how to sell this way, the tough way. I wasn't born selling like this. In fact, I was the vice president of sales and marketing for Rolls-Royce Aerospace IT, a relatively senior guy, when I learned the Sandler approach to selling. And it involved me making very significant change to how I approached the market. And all the way through my own Sandler experience in the year, I've had to adapt all the stuff that I learned in my life and change how I've done it to get a better value from it. And I think my journey and the journey of all the Sandler guys you talk to makes us unique. And I mean that very seriously. Okay, I get that. I mean, I always joke that I eat what I kill. Clearly, I'm not exactly starving. Tell me this then. I've seen it happen many times where the CEO says, well, you know, training's all well and good, but we employ veteran salespeople. We don't really need sales training. What's your response to that? Well, I would say that's true. You should employ great salespeople. Why would you not employ the best? But I'm just back from America, and I spent some time with what I would think is probably the most experienced sales team that I've met in the entire world. It's no disrespect to these guys. Their average age is the very high 50s. They're in a very niche market. They've done more in their market than almost anyone I know. Some of these guys are 35-year veterans in their market niche. They're fantastic. I have never known a higher level of participation and energy than from that team because those who really know what they're doing 
are the ones with the greatest appetite for learning. It's the ones that think they know everything you're wasting your time. And these people in here, they've hired fantastic sales guys, they've retained fantastic sales guys, and great sales guys know how much more there is to do. So if you hire great sales guys, let them develop. Let them spend some time going to the gym and doing a workout and take time off away from the territory and learn to be better at what they do. So hire great guys and train the dickens out of them. Agreed. Okay, so the next question. In my experience, the relationship that the trainer has with the manager is often far more important than the relationship that the trainer has with the salesperson. Why is that? That's an interesting thing. I think the first thing I would say in here is there must be complete alignment. Imagine you've got a kind of three-legged stool. You've got your sales team, you've got your manager, and you've got your, your trainer in here. If those three things are not in balance, it just simply won't work. I've seen fantastic content. I've seen spin selling and challenger and Miller Hyman, none of which are bad. They all make some sense. But I've seen and I've taken part in projects where you train those things very effectively and then the sales team don't buy into it and it all falls down. And I've seen ones where the sales guys love it and the managers don't buy into it and they manage a different way from the sales team have just been trained. And therefore, that's another waste of time. So the first thing I'm going to say is all three elements have to be aligned. And if they don't buy the trainer, they won't buy the training. Oh. The magic is in the room. That's one thing. And I think your, your comment is exactly right. If the sales manager and the sales trainer are not completely aligned in the goals they're trying to achieve, really, don't do it. Literally, don't do it. In our team here in Geneva, we have walked away from business because we weren't aligned. And the leadership would say, go train my guys. And I say, well, we'll train the guys. Then we'll train you how to reinforce and turn this into reality. And they would, no, 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 just train my guys. And I'll say, well, okay, we'll take your money, but you'll get nothing back for it because it won't work. So we walked away from business where you don't get that alignment you're talking about. Well, this then comes to the next bugbear that I have, which is I think the most undertrained salespeople within any organization are middle sales management. In my experience, what tends to happen is a good salesperson gets promoted above their level of competence into a sales management position. You lose a good salesperson and you gain an atrocious manager who does what was done to them and they lack the ability to transfer their skills. How do you counter that? I'll tell you that the first thing is that, is as you were telling that, I had cold chills running down my spine. Because many years ago, my first serious sales job, I was called into the office by my CEO, and he says, well, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is we just sacked your boss, which is the guy who hired me. And the good news is you're the new boss. <laughs> I went, oh, that's good. He went, no, it's not good, you're underperforming. That's what I thought, I'm the best sales guy. He says, yes, you were the best sales guy. You walked in this room. Now you're an underperforming sales manager. Get out there and fix it. And I literally had no idea what to do. I just didn't know what to do. And I would say, you're, you're so true. That entry-level sales leader doesn't know what to do. And it's only when I started learning stuff, which I, and I got so much from the standard management system about the four different types of leadership and management and how to actually do it. And then when I read all this stuff, and I'm doing a lot of good punts here for standard enterprise selling, when I saw the pre-call planner and I saw the debrief, that's how to sit and talk to your guys about how to sell, then I realized what coaching's all about. I used to have a sales guy in my first leadership job, and I would call him up and say, hey, Dave, what are you doing tomorrow? It says, I've got a very important meeting. And I would go, um, well, good luck on that then, because I didn't know what else to say. Then he would have the meeting and I would go, how was that a very important meeting? He would go, it was great. It was meant to last for one hour. I was meant to talk to two guys. It lasted for five hours and there were 10 guys there. I went, that sounds good. What happens next? We'll go to another meeting. And I'd go, oh, and I just literally, no fault of mine, no one told me what to do. So I think getting those guys in here, it's the person who the sales guy calls after a good meeting or a bad meeting is the direct boss, right? And if you, those guys don't have templates and patterns and models to follow, geez, it's going to make sales life a pretty tough thing. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So then this brings into the next phase, which is in corporate training, without including HR and L&D, I think things are going to go horrifically wrong. So tell me, why is it that L&D and HR are not necessarily usually aligned with sales and the sales objectives? And how do we help them create that alignment and achieve that common purpose? Yeah, I think you've got an excellent point there. And the reason that, that we and our team here are responsible for uh, corporate training development is that we always have a very strong focus on HR. We did a bit of analysis one time about four years ago, 
It said who were the key decision makers and our most successful clients. And they all had a very strong HR input, every one of them. Right now, when I look at our most successful clients now, where there's a strong HR, we have very, very close link because HR is all about managing the human capital. And the sales team is human capital and process put together. That's it. You add some opportunities in there, you've got a winning team. Very often, a lot of organizations look at HR a little bit like the old-fashioned personnel departments. That They think the job there is to do the admin around recruitment and the admin around separation and handle a few bits and pieces around sick pay and holiday pay. Successful organizations know they must invest in their people. Now, that sounds like a sort of common thing that everyone says, but what does it mean? And what it means is if HR are not involved in helping the organization achieve its business goals, you're going to struggle and I would say fail. So we always find that we've got to have those organizations that we work with where HR and business leadership work as a partnership. That's where success lies. Absolutely. In my experience, good HR people, and they are rare, but really good HR people are worth their weight in gold. And in fact, if you look at the historical life cycle of any business, typically it starts out with a technician who eventually tries to hand off sales because they don't really like it. And then they burn through nine or 10 salespeople. And then that salesperson eventually says, well, I hate prospecting. So then they bring on board somebody involved in marketing. And eventually they bring on someone in finance. And then finance brings on someone in HR to act as a cheap legal substitute. And that's all about face, because I think any good organization should understand that sales is a subset of marketing, which is a heresy for most salespeople. But most salespeople will choke on that. But it is. Anything that touches the customer is marketing. And sales is a subset of that. And I think finance should report to HR. But unfortunately, people appear as one line item on the balance sheet. And somehow, then HR reports into finance very often. And I think that's a big mistake as well. So let me bring this full circle. In terms of creating engagement with corporates, what are your points of entry? And why is it important to have a multi-pronged approach? Well, I think that takes the classic sales question because my job is to sell Sandler training corporate development to major organizations. And that means I have to understand my marketplace. And let me tell you who they are. We talk to three different buyer profiles because there's three people that we can really help in any major corporate organization. First, number one, whoever owns the business results, the business result owner, that can be a CEO, it can be a VP, it can very, very often, it's a business unit leader, which effectively is a CEO. So the BRO, the bro, the business results owner, whoever owns the P&L, that's number one for us because they're responsible for making the organization work. In every occasion we know, they have a head of sales. So whoever owns the sales number. And the third one is whoever owns the people. So we talk to three different profiles. Who owns the P&L? Who owns the income? Who owns the people? And we have a message for each of these three. And of the three, typically, the message towards the human capital owner is the one which is, is the least heard. And that's who we really, really want to talk to. We can help you get more from your people. That's the big message I want to give to those people. Absolutely. Increasingly, what I see is that sales organizations are expected to do more with less. And if you believe the financial hype that's going on at the moment, there's a lot of talk about moving back into a, another recession. Obviously, there's mixed information. But in terms of why an organization would want to invest heavily in training and development, which is normally one of the first things that's cut during recession. Why is it that they should be focusing on that now rather than waiting for the wave to hit? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think if I look at companies who are habitually successful, because it's the habitually successful people who like to follow, one, they always try and stay ahead of the curve. And right now, I'll tell you where the curve is. The curve is getting more value from people. Technology is looking after itself, and that's fantastic. There's loads and loads of Salesforce automation going on, and I'm a massive fan of it. The organizations which will succeed in the future will not succeed by accident. Organizations succeed by design. And if you don't build your design, your success of your design around your people, you're going to have a really tough time. So simply, the only organizations who we ever really want to talk to are those who are committed to future success. And they know that whatever they did to get them where they are now, 
probably won't be enough to get them to, to the next phase of their development. So we only really want to work with those organizations who are committed to future competitive success. And when it comes to people, one of the biggest things about people is that we talk about branding and we talk about the importance of a brand image and differentiation. An organization is differentiated by the behavior of the people when they talk to the market. Absolutely. It's differentiated by the people. And if you don't invest in those people, you're like a smart company with stupid people. That's not a good profile to have. <laughs> you want a smart company with smart people. You want to talk to empowered, decisive, knowledgeable professionals. That's what we want to do. So that's triggered another thought in my mind, which is that very often salespeople will have a tendency to call at their level of comfort, their level of assignment, at their level of familiarity. What is it that Sandler Corporate Training will bring to the party in terms of helping salespeople to act with equal business stature to people in the C-suite? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. The first thing is that's not always going to work. You have to bear in mind that the team that you've got that brought you to where you are right now may have to change. And I think that we will very, very often find is that people who are very happy technically, they're very happy talking to technical buyers, are suddenly forced to talk way outside their comfort zone. And sometimes they can be forced to do that for a relatively short period in time. Look at kind of the 90-day period. You can't always make those guys into the guys you can go and talk to the CEO. And sometimes I think it's almost unethical to do that because you can ruin people's careers. You've got to say, who are my people and when are they best suited? Now, we use an excellent system, one of our partners called Divine. And what Divine do, they'll map a team and they'll say, here are four different types of salespeople. Why not put round pegs in round holes and square pegs in square holes? And don't try and take your classic farmer in terms of go cold calling prospecting. Because you know what you'll do? You'll find another job. Mm. And in between finding and now finding another job, he'll spend a lot of time failing. So don't do that. First thing you want to do is understand who you've got. Next thing you've got to do is kind of turn that a little bit on its head. And here's what I mean by that. We want people to excel at what they're best at. At the same time, we're going to push every single person in the organization outside their comfort zone. Now that sounds a little bit contradictory, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to push them outside their comfort zone to excel at what they're already good at. And that means if they're technical, we'll push them into more of a commercial conversation. If they're commercially minded, we'll push them higher up the decision-making process. But we won't do it just by saying, do this, do this, do this. We will show them how to do it, and we will help them through the implementation of the new techniques. Because it's the implementation, the change process, that makes the Sandler difference. Okay, this then brings me to the next critical point, which is that you mentioned no one pops out their mother's womb able to sell, and they have to learn. It's an acquired skill. And one of the things that I see, and one of the biggest reasons why I see training fail, is it tends to be drink from the fire hose and then expect people to change their behavior. Why is reinforcement critical? That's a really interesting question, and it goes counter to your intuition, and here's why. If you imagine the classic sales training is you go and do two days in a seminar room with all your buddies and you have a really big drink at night and it's great fun and you love the trainer and they love you. And when you leave the training room, all the good stuff you learn stays in the room. You don't take it with you. Fun bit is the least productive, which is the strangest thing. You have great fun during your training, but it doesn't actually produce the change. Producing the changes when you leave there and you start to do the learning. It's the implementation of reinforcement. Give it a really simple thing. In Sandler, we've got this big thing we're so committed to, which is the pain funnel. The toughest thing about the pain funnel is one simple question. The first question in the pain funnel, could you tell me more about that? It's the most basic thing in the world. Someone says to you, hello, we're trying to improve our production speed. We're trying to reduce cost of work in progress, blah, 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 whatever it is. That's your comfort zone. That's your tech. And you, everything about you makes you rush towards trying to solve that problem. In Sandler, we'll say, don't do that. Hold back. Understand the pain. Don't rush to talk about the product. Simple thing. Very, very hard to do. And what we'll do is during our reinforcement calls, our webinars, our ongoing training, and all the very, very, we'll say, did you try that thing? Did you do this thing? How did it work for you? And we are very, very strong believers of the rule of 10, 20, 70. The 10, 20, 70 rule is critical to the Sandler approach. 10% of what you learn comes from the primary source. In terms of training, it's the smart guy at the front of the room in the flip chart or a book or a webinar, whatever. That's 
20% comes from how you interact with that knowledge. In terms of Samba corporate training, roughly half the time that we've got our people, they're doing role plays in practice. So that's the 20 is how they interact with it. 70% of learning comes from implementation and experience. So we build ourselves around the 10, 20, 70. We love our boot camps, our 2D things. Everyone knows they're fantastically powerful things. The real work starts the end of the second day when you start to implement. That's why reinforcement is so critical. And the role of the manager in reinforcement, talk about that. It's absolutely critical. If we say, for example, you must invest in the human being when you're selling, no matter what it is you're selling, you've got to slow down and talk to the human being. That means establishing bonding and rapport in some form of equal business stature. That means understanding that's a great deal. And if we say that, and the manager says, no, 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 do a presentation, rush to the PowerPoint, your training's a waste of time. And we know guys that do that. I've actually met sales managers who manage how many PowerPoint presentations their guys do. And I, I try hard not to say you should be sacked for saying that because the guy's wasting everyone's time. You've got to have the sale, you've got to have the sales manager supporting the sales guy and their ability to build those relationships. So you've got to have, you must have alignment. I had an absolute horror story a couple of weeks ago. One of the guys I'm training was doing a pre-call rehearsal with his team and they produced a 19 PowerPoint presentation. I mean, what on earth would they think? That's the kind of thing that you'd expect a torturer to do to someone. That's right. That's right. So the thing that really interests me here is that what are the beliefs that restrict a salesperson or a sales manager's ability to perform to their real true potential? I think one of the biggest beliefs is that the market's a frightening place and that they should be afraid. I think people genuinely think that the power resides on the other side. And when I was a, a little tiny sales guy, when I worked for Axel Nobel, one of the big chemical companies, we always had a very strong belief that we're in a very competitive market. They've got the money, we've got the product, we've got to convince them to buy our thing. That was kind of the approach that we took. And there was a little bit, there was a contest going on in there. And I think if you walk in thinking, this is a win-lose competition, and I'm fighting the other side, you've put yourself in a very weak position. And I think in terms of belief, the biggest belief that I've got in sales, and this is the one thing we constantly push to our guys, to, to every client we've got, and all of our organization, no matter how large or small they are, is we say this, all we're here to do is to find people's pains and solve them profitably. That's it. As a general rule, this is not statistically proven, but as a general rule, my experience is roughly 85% of the market is not going to become your customer right now. They have other priorities. They're doing something else. That's fine. I understand that. My job is to find the 15% of people that we can help and solve the pains profitably. Just relax. That's the biggest belief. We're just here to help people for goodness sake. And we're not going to try and force anyone. We're never going to try and convince anyone. All we're trying to do is work with other human beings to make a perfectly reasonable business decision. It's interesting. I have an old video cassette, which shows my age, of the usual suspects. And I always use that as an analogy. There are three rules, three beliefs that buyers have convinced salespeople in the same way that Kaiser Shose told convince the world he doesn't exist. And they are the customer is king, the buyer is always right, and the man will the rules. The customer is not king. He's never more or less than your equal, even on your worst day. The buyer is almost never right because the problem they bring you is never the real problem. They always bring you the problem in one or two forms. They bring it in the form of symptoms, or they bring it in the form of nirvana. And the man with the gold is the man with the problem, not you. You're the one with the solution, and the commodity is cash. But the problem I see happen time and time again is salespeople have been imbued with this belief system, which causes them to give away their power. And if you don't establish equal business stature up front, and I think one of the most powerful things that we teach in Samba is the upfront contract. It was a real revelation to me. When I first came across it, I was listening to some audios by a guy called Guru Ganesha Halsa, who was known as the shoe guru in the 1960s and 70s when he was selling espadrilles and beaches in California. And he was such an inspiration to many of us in Sandler because he taught us about equal business stature and about the real value of what we offer. And as a result of that, my money concept changed. So again, what is it that Sandler corporate training teaches salespeople about money and their own money concept? Okay, it's a great question. Here's one of the biggest things about it. 
Our clients tend to be major multi-million dollar organizations and they spend huge amounts of money on R&D, huge amounts of money on marketing, very, very massive investments on things. And then sales guys go in and they try and PowerPoint and beg for business. You know, they go in and go, buy my thing, buy my thing, please buy my thing. Can I send you a a proposal? And then they hope the business is going to come through. You take huge investments in here and you end up begging for business. So that's a really negative thing. The whole standard approach is this. The human beings that do the selling have to reflect the organization. And the organization isn't there just to sell commodities. Here's one of the key things that we teach. It's all about establishing, as you call it, the business structure. And we look at relationships in four different stages. And all four are valid. Stage number one is a purely transactional relationship. When my car runs out of petrol, I buy petrol. I don't really care who it's from. There's no relationship there. When you move up there, you go to the next step, which is a preferred relationship. When I buy coffee, when I fly all over the world for our corporate training gigs, I go to Starbucks. Not because the coffee's any better, but because they have good Wi-Fi and I can stay there as long as I like. I prefer Starbucks. When I go higher than that, the next level up is a partner. A partner is someone I talk to about my problems. And the highest level is trusted advisor. And my trusted advisor, those people I talk to about my ambitions. Transactional, preferred partner, trusted advisor. The salesperson's job is to get yourself up that scale towards trusted advisor. The product is there and all everything is... The salesperson's job is a very human job. And if you go in thinking about money, you're going to be beaten up on money. If you go in thinking about, my company deserves the best possible customers and I want to work with partners, that's kind of what you'll find. If you think I'm begging for business, if I keep begging and presenting and doing proposals, I may get lucky now and then, you've set your life path. Well, I think this also uh, focuses our conversation on another really important area, the difference between leading and lagging indicators. You've already alluded to it with the, the manager who targeted the salespeople on the number of presentations that they make, the number of proposals that they send, the number of dials that they make, the revenue, the profit, all of which I view as lagging indicators. They're not really good predictors of success. They're confusing action with activity. And just being a busy fool doesn't move you forward. So in terms of changing the culture of a sales organization, what is it that we have to do when we're going into corporations to change their culture so that we focus them on the right end of the problem? I think one of the first things you have to do is to understand what it is that we're selling. And I think so many organizations go in thinking they're selling product. Whereas in fact, what they're doing is they're solving pains and they're doing pain resolution. So as far as I'm concerned, when we start the culture change, the culture change is very much this difference. Imagine a crossroads, actually a junction. Then one junction, you've got what the customer wants. The customer wants to talk to you about your product and your pricing. That's what they want. They want a product and pricing conversation. What do you got? What does it cost? Our mission is to start talking about pain. So straight away, you've got this little conflict between what the customer wants and expects and what you know is best for them. And that's a cultural matter. And you've got to get people to buy into the idea. Organizations are only successful. They only get the premium when they focus on pain. And that one little thing is a massive culture change. Now, if you tie pain discovery and pain resolution through to the human aspect of selling, if an organization can't make that change, it's going to keep itself trapped in the commodity market. And that is the culture change that we've got to help people address. Well, this points to another area, which is one of my favorite Sama rules is you will only perform to the level your self-concept will allow. So you mind talking a little bit about how when we're going in and we're doing corporate training, we focus on self-concept and why that's so important. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And it's so core to what we do. So many people in my office, I've got dozens and dozens of books that's close the sale or write a winning proposal or do a killer presentation and all, all, all that technical stuff in here. One of the key things inside Sandler is we think there's no one single bullet. We take a three-pronged approach to this whole thing about self-awareness. We call it behavior, attitude, and technique. Inside our organization, if we work with a major corporate client, during our discovery phase, we'll always say to them, what techniques do you think your people need to enhance? You know, what, what specific techniques do you think really matter in here? And it could be pain discovery, it could be establishing rapport, it could be getting to complex decision-making organizations, all these things. So we'll say, what techniques will work for your organization? Next thing we need to say is, what behaviors? 
What do you want your people to do more of? And what do you want your people to do less of? And how do we communicate to them? And that becomes your leading indicators. And the last is attitude. What attitude do you want your people to get to the market? And how do we make that happen? So one of the first things we'll do is understand through discovery, what are your techniques, behaviors, and attitudes that we're going to have to teach these guys to do? And that doesn't happen by reading a book or doing a clever, funny video or just doing the two days. It happens through a complex change process. So I think that, and that self-image is absolutely essential. We've got so many clients that contact me on LinkedIn to say, it's been three years since we were sandlerized. Mm-hmm. And what they mean by being sandlerized is we've changed the way they talk from being product-led, product-focused, do my presentation, do my pitch, do my proposal, then plead for the business, that four Ps, coming away from that to saying, look, we're just trying to do this thing in this market. Perhaps I can explain how we work with other companies just like yours. And you become a storyteller. And you can't do that unless you feel confident in yourself. So we'll teach you how to do those things. And that's all about self-belief. This brings me to the subject of salespeople's rights. I remember going in to be part of an awards process. And when I raised the subject of salespeople's rights, one of the judges actually said salespeople have no rights. Mm. And I was in a bit of a state of shock, if I'm being perfectly honest, because unless a salesperson understands they have rights in the sale, they have the right to say no, they have the right to equal business stature, they have the right to ask questions and get answers to the questions that they asked. They have the right to do their job. They have the right to charge premium for the value they deliver. If salespeople do not understand that, then what you'll find is they abdicate their rights through ignorance because they don't know that they have them and through conditioning because they believe that the customer is king, the man with the gold makes the rules. So I'm really curious to find out in terms of your approach when you're talking to particularly the HR people, how is it that you talk to them about a salesperson's rights and why it's so important to train salespeople in these softer skills in order to be able to become effective salespeople? The first thing is on salesperson's rights. I remember, and actually it was David Madsen, our CEO, this would be maybe 11 years ago, who actually said, salespeople have rights too. Now, I was in my mid-40s when I heard that, and that was, that was news to me. And I, and I had been VP of sales and marketing, director. So I've been a pretty senior guy in many, many major blue chip companies. I thought, oh, that never occurred to me. It's <laughs> a bit of a sad thing to say. The more I think, I thought, that's that pretty true. I do have rights. And I thought back to my own experience. When I had sold big, new, innovative, disruptive stuff, I had always sold those things as a partner. I had never begged for that business when I had sold big things. I'd always sold my position of something like equality where they respected me and I respected them. And we were just two people or two groups of people making decisions, should we do business together or not? And I thought, well, my experience backs that up. And one of the things we always want to say, coming back to your your HR approach, is that we want every individual and every one of our corporate accounts to become the best professional version of themselves that they can be. The very best they can be. We don't want to turn them into different people. We don't want to turn them into cookie cutter, everyone's a robot. We're not allowed to do that. What we do want to do is want to say, this is what you're great at. This is a path that you should follow. We'll make you better at doing that. And the first thing is you have to address your self-belief. You have the right to be their business partner. You have the right to certain levels of respect. And here's some tools. Here's a really simple standard tool called the upfront contract. The simplest thing in the world, but it doesn't mean it's as easy. We teach people how to do the upfront contract to ask for and to expect respect from the other side. And we know it works. It definitely works. We know, we teach people to say, you got to believe that you're here to solve pain. But here's how you discover pain in the first place. We know that as people start to apply pain discovery and they move away from doing product pitches, their own self-belief and self-image raises. And HR people tell us this all the time. Now, we work with one of the world's largest HR consultancies in a fantastic project. And they told me something I didn't know. They said that people join organizations for the salary. They leave because of the boss. Now, when they say the boss, in reality, they mean the working environment of working for that boss. And we really, really believe that to be true. So we want to make that whole idea of the person maximize their own potential and a great positive working environment, specifically with their boss, where they're all aligned towards the same aims and they're all working to the same process. That allows you to finish your Friday afternoon and go for a beer and get 
I did the best that anyone can do in this job. That's how we make happy people, productive people. And that makes HR happy. So this brings me to another really interesting point. Increasingly, what we see is that salespeople are motivated by what drives them. Motivation is intrinsic. It's not extrinsic. It can't be sustained by having a competition. It can't be sustained by beating them with a carrot. It can't be sustained by bullying and brutalizing. And very often you see goals push down the organization from the top. Now, interestingly, if you don't align the personal goals with the corporate goal, then what you find is salespeople will very quickly lose their motivation. The second part of motivation is that they need to feel empowered. They need to feel like they control it. And in the onboarding process, in the recruitment process, a manager needs to be able to tie the intrinsic motivation with the corporate goal and be able to help the salesperson feel like they're controlling their own destiny. Now, I'm really curious, in terms of the conversations that you guys are having at the corporate level, how are you tackling that with the senior management and with HR to make sure that the training doesn't fail because of lack of attention on the human element? I think it's very interesting to look at how to manage because the word manage is quite a, it's quite a broad word. Here's what we know to be true. And we know this if you look at the Blanchard organization who do fantastic work on situational leadership. You look at our own approach, which I think reflects it quite closely as well from our management system. We say that there's four essential parts to being a leader. And there's four faces. And it's not the case of everyone has been an inspirational, motivational leader. That's just bunkum. There's four key elements that people have got to do when you're a leader. You can't assume that one size fits all and a fantastic, inspirational, motivational leader is going to work for everybody. But very often what I've seen is that fantastic inspirational leader is a tremendous beacon for 10% of his team and 90% just don't feel engaged. So you've got to have four key elements. Here's what you've got to have. A sales leader or a sales manager must be able and willing to train their people. You can't give people an expectation of doing better pain discovery, better control, better closure if you don't train them. Next thing, some people need to be supervised. It's just the way it is. If someone's job is to do 15 or 20 cold calls, you've got to say to them, did you do those cold calls? Did you do that pain discovery? Let's debrief that call. You've got to supervise people sometimes because a lot of people are motivated by visible success. So you need to supervise and people think you shouldn't, but you do have to supervise. Next thing you've got to do is you've got to learn to coach. That means you've got to help people get the best from themselves from what they already know. That's what coaching is. You know how to do it. What do you think you should do? What do you think your options in here? What's your plan for this? The classic coaching questions. And in fact, when I look at standard enterprise selling templates, I look on those being coaching templates. That's a strategic conversation. Well, what about this? What questions will you ask? What do you think they might ask? That's all. That's not a form to fill in. That's a coaching template. And the last thing is mentoring. Mentoring is when you go out and you walk the talk. Mark, it's something that you and I learned during the early parts of our career. We almost certainly learned by watching people who were more experienced than us. We walked into rooms, we saw our bosses go, wow, look what he just did. I'm going to do that too because my boss did it and it worked. That's mentoring. You've got to commit to being an exemplar. And that means that when we do our sales training, we must train the leaders. And we say, if you don't do what we tell you to do and you do something else, the training's a waste of time. So on the whole idea of motivation, it's not a vision of success and the joy of your future and blah, 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 blah. The different people need different things. And those four basic models of leadership are critical for a leader to understand and be able to, to use. So let's talk about personal responsibility. If okay. is investing heavily in training and development, it's the salesperson's responsibility to employ and apply the learning. And when you're training a sales team, it's very easy for them to all go into this groupthink kind of mentality where they say, you know, we've been around the houses, you're not from our industry, how can you tell us what to do when we're out in the field? We're experienced. Mm -hmm. So what's your response to that? Well, they are experienced, so they probably wouldn't be in the room. We tend to only really train organizations who are good at what they do and have some good experience in here. So we say, first thing we're going to do is to say, yes, we completely expect that your experience is critically important. In fact, a lot of what we do when we train is actually facilitation because we want to take the best experience in the room. What we're, if you like, what we're trying to sell them 
is we're selling the idea of a nice process, a nice clear methodology of how to apply what is actually fantastic common sense. But there's nothing quite so rare on this planet as good common sense applied effectively. So we'll say, let's just take a classic example. Understanding how to understand the decision-making process of a complex client. Classic problem. Well, the first thing we're going to do is to say, okay, well, why should we bother doing this? Next thing we're going to say is, well, what works and what doesn't work? And we'll pull together all of their experience. Then we'll look at global best practice, which we've developed, and we'll compare our global best practice to what they say. And guess what? The two of them tend to be pretty similar. And we'll bring it and say, look, this is what we all think works. So the first thing we're going to do is all we're trying to do is to pull their own best practice out, compare it to it with a little dash of Tabasco sauce, a little bit of our own best practice. When they don't align, we're always curious about that, but they tend to align very carefully. That's the first thing, is we've got to show respect for their experience and success and people recognize when we're doing this. Next thing we're going to do is we're always going to be pushing people to change. There's lots of pseudoscience on this, but change is not easy. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to help them implement that change over time. And what we love to do is to say, let's do a little bit of goal setting in here. Let's do a bit of goal setting. Here's a goal. Let's just understand what's going to happen in difference between now and 30 days from now on this particular area. Let's just do a, th- a little 30-day goal. And at the end of this time, we'll talk about this. Here's another thing. All the research that we ever see tends to indicate that it takes roughly 90 days to make a change stick. We'll say, okay, in 90 days' time, let's have another little chat. You want to move from being the guy that does the presentation, the guy that does the proposal, to the guy that does pain discovery more effectively. Let's just see, 30 days and 90 days, and we will work with them through that change. So as you know, I'm a bit of a fan of channel sales. And what I'd like to understand is what Sander Corporate is doing to adapt to the trend, the wave within direct sales. Because if we look at the statistics on this, 70% of all products sold across all 26 verticals are sold through partners. By 2026, Gartner is forecasting 90% of all technology will be sold through partners. Forrester has some really interesting research on this in terms of the changes within the channel. And increasingly, as technology sales becomes more and more complex, a vendor will just be one tiny component of the overall sales stack. And as a result of that, what you're going to have is channel partners selling with other channel partners and with the vendors being the product provider. I'm really curious to see what it is that we're doing as an organization to tap into this shift in the entire sales culture. Yeah, I think one of the most important things is to be aware of is that we're very fortunate at Sandler and that we have literally written the book on how to enhance and improve channel, uh, channel partners. We're very lucky. It's one of the good things about Sandler is we're full of clever people. So we've literally written a book on this. And in terms of corporate training development, here's what that means in practice. Invariably, we are called in with the idea of being, please train our sales team or please trail our pre-sales. Or, and that's just fantastic. What we now do in every single occasion is we say to, you, to them, how does this interact with your channel partner strategy? That's our first question. And they will always say the same thing. And I think every time they say the same thing, we give them technical training and we have them a once a year party. I go, oh, that's very good. Thanks for that. <laughs> and we'll say, okay, well, just t- tell us how you manage channels internally. So your starting point is always, are you a fit channel partner? So the first question to us is, how do you manage your channel partners? Is, how, how good are you at doing this? What are your internal capabilities? What's your competence? Are you for them? So we'll always start. And the same way we'll say to a sales guy, don't talk about the product. Let's understand you a little bit better and you and your process. We'll do the same in channel partners too. So we'll follow the strategy that Sandler Train developed through those two guys in the UK who you may be familiar with. First thing we'll do is to say, okay, let's hold the mirror up to you. And invariably, I hate to say this, we tend to be a bit disappointed by what we see, that organizations love their direct sales and give them all the love and attention in the world. And the channel partnership team is a little subset of marketing with a little bit of technical help and not a lot else. And invariably, channel partners underperform because they're undermanaged. So the first thing that we'll do is, yes, we will definitely look at your direct sales team. That's our happy space. We know that super well. Let's talk about you and how you are managing your channel partners. So the first thing we'll do is a little bit more strategic, but understand how they manage their, that part of their market. So that's a big thing with us. Absolutely. The thing that flabbergasts me is the lack of organizational structure 
within the channel? I mean, traditionally, you've grown up and you've gone out, you've recruited lots of partners, you've created a portal full of technical data sheets, all that kind of stuff. You train their technicians. But what they don't do is they don't train their channel partners to sell their products. Mm-hmm. Now, to my mind, that strikes me as an act of lunacy. So given that you're going to get pushback where the vendor management team says, well, you know, they're not ours. Why should we spend money on training them how to sell? Mm-hmm. What's your response to that? They don't train them. Absolutely, just don't train yourself partners. If you don't want to make any more money, you don't want to have your, your return on your investment, don't train them. Because what's going to happen is that the people who train the channel partners best, people who sell themselves most effectively to their channel partners will get the best results. It's just as simple as that. This is really interesting because what I see very often is vendors come up with another shiny feature of their product and they talk about that. And I always equate talking about features and benefits of products, the equivalent of showing strangers photos of your ugly children. And the problem is that too often they are product focused. They can't wait to talk about the product, but that's not how you sell. This whole conversation has been based around salespeople going out and diagnosing the problem. Now, the partners, interestingly enough, are very well positioned to help the channel salespeople get better results because they're the ones who are intimate and familiar with their customers. So what is it culturally that prevents channel sales organizations from believing in and trusting in and investing in their partners? I think most organizations have got a pretty checkered history on channel partner sales. It tends, as you say, to be very product-focused. You set a few relatively brutal goals about units to be shifted. And, uh, and in fact, when you fail those goals, nothing bad really happens. You just lose a bit of discount, and that's all. So I think the people who are really, really good at channel partner management, some of the really big IT platforms are great at doing this. They actually make it into a genuine partnership. And what they will do, and one of the best ways of doing this, is that rather than just training the channel reps on product, They'll train those people on the typical pains that they solve, that they train them not just to do a pitch, but to do good qualification. And they'll say, this is what our target market looks like. This is the kind of situation they find themselves in. These are their typical pains. And then they'll say, this is how we solve them. So they take a far more structured approach to problem solving than product pitching. So one of the things that I learned very early in Sandler is you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. And your credibility comes from the questions that you ask, not the information that you give. So in closing, what is it about the advanced questioning that makes Sandler stand apart from even some of the better sales methodologies like SPIN, like Challenger? There's not an easy answer to this question, but it's very important. And it's very much to do with attitude. You see, if I look at some of the ways that, some of the ways that people were taught to ask questions and I was taught to ask questions, they're pretty manipulative. You ask question A, question B, question C, and ah, I got you. Therefore, you have to buy my thing or you're a moron. And it's just not okay to do that. I think you have to go in there saying, look, this is who we are in the market and we think they might want to deal with you. And you have to adopt a genuine, all-pervading sense of real curiosity. You've got to be authentic, curious. I wonder if we can help you in this. We do these things in other companies. We've seen this situation, but I wonder if it would work for you. If you walk in with that sense of genuine curiosity, which you can teach, if you go in with that genuine curiosity, you'll be treated as an authentic potential business partner. If you walk in tap dancing with your samples in your PowerPoint and your brochures, you'll be kept in the waiting room for that extra 40 minutes. <laughs> That's the difference that we're trying to talk about in here. You've got to walk in proud of who you are and your professional capability, proud that you will act authentically with the other side. We are only here to solve other people's pains. Well, in closing in that case, that brings me to this point, which is that you get reflected back what you project out. And it starts with intent. If your intent is to try and make the sale, then your prospect will pick up on that. And it feels like selfish selling. feels like selfish partner management. And on the other hand, your intent is to establish, is there a fit? Can we help? And to genuinely care that makes all the difference. It certainly made a transformational difference in my selling. I went from a one in 20 close rate going at market rate to closing anything up to 96% 
and charging premium where I get I can command fees of anywhere between 12 and 56 times my competitor's rate. Now, that doesn't happen because I'm a lovely chap. Almost no one likes me when they first meet me because I ask difficult, uncomfortable, challenging, insightful <laughs> questions that make them sit up and prick up their ears and think, I've never seen my business in that way. And if you look at the research on this, CEOs hate receiving bad phone calls, but they love receiving great phone calls from great salespeople. Something like 86% of salespeople in the survey I read about three or four years ago, I can't remember the source, said that they welcome a great sales call. So let's just finish up on that. Why is it that great salespeople are invited in by chief executives and the C-suite? Yeah, you know what? I think that's the ultimate question. And I'll tell you how I measure it myself. A lot of my clients, and I mean the people of my clients, they're the vice president of HR, they're the vice president of sales, they're CEOs. And one of the measures that I've got my success are, do they pick up the phone when I call them and do they return my calls? And they do. And I often say, well, why is that? Why do I get through to these people? Why do they call back? And the simple answer is this. Every interaction I have with these very, very senior people brings both of us value. I bring them value when I call them. If they didn't think I would bring them value, they wouldn't call me back. We work with organizations who are renowned as being impossible to deal with, but we find them easy to deal with because we don't talk to them unless they've got something interesting to say. When I say interesting, I don't mean interesting for me because I can sell you something. I mean interesting to you because I can make your people happier. I can put more profit in your pocket and I can help you get a better future in here. So if you don't walk into every single interaction with, how am I going to bring value to this other person? You're just not going to get through. And if that is your goal, that goal will shine through. That's why CEOs like talking to us. Bill Morrison, thank you so much for coming on the Inquisitor podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for those of you who are interested, Bill wrote a fantastic book on selling technology from your bootstraps. And it's really worth reading called Bootstrap Selling. And if any of you want to contact him, he's available on LinkedIn. He'll be over in Orlando on the 20th to 22nd of March for the Client Summit. If any of you are interested in exploring training your team on a European-wide or global basis. So that's Marcus County saying thank you very much, Bill. Thank you and uh, good luck and good selling. Thank you very much and look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Marcus County signing off. Bye-bye. <laughs>